Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors and contributors of Strategy Watch discuss current events and other military-related topics with a splash of history. I'm your host, Dan Masterson. Joining us today is Jim Dunnigan, editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and acknowledged pioneer and innovator in board war games. Also joining us today is Austin Bay, associate editor of Strategy Page, military author, columnist, and retired Colonel U.S. Army Reserves. Welcome, Austin and Jim. I'm going to start out with you today, Austin. Could you talk a little to asymmetric warfare and where it's where it's headed? Well, look, there's several definitions of asymmetric warfare. Usually, it's it's uh, put it cast in something uh, where you're dealing with a a very weak opponent who is able to uh, handle uh, a counterattack, surprise, surprise, anything involving surprise is arguably uh, 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 a form of asymmetric warfare. But warfare is based on gaining an advantage, an asymmetry, Uh, one uh, belligerent versus, uh, versus the other belligerent. And so, Again, the, the terminology has become, in, 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 among defense analysts, intelligence analysts and the like, uh, slanted towards uh, the weak uh, taking on the strong. But strength, when you think about it, so it's like Stalin's line, quantity has a quality all of its own. Uh, and you're seeing Putin try to uh, show that uh, Stalin had a point right now in, 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 with all the human wave attacks in uh, in Eastern Ukraine, but uh, strength uh, would be an asymmetry. Now, in current current discussions, cyber comes up repeatedly because uh, in many ways, it's a known uh, unknown what what cyber is going to do. It's going to do something. We know that Cyber attacks have the potential of, uh, like, can shut down uh, communications. Uh, we uh, don't know how. And you know, Jim's written extensively about this. Jim has uh, a, a jaundiced view of the apocalyptic analyses of, of what a, uh, a a cyber attack uh, w- uh, would do, but it is going to have effects. And suddenly, a side, and I'll, I'll take uh, the United States here as the as the victim of this type of this, uh, or the target of this type of uh, asymmetric attack. If you've relied heavily on global positioning satellites, and rely heavily on uh, sending information through satellites uh, to uh, with electronics, but guidance and both sensors and your uh, shooting elements that are relying on it and you can blind them whether it's cyber or taking down a satellite uh you've you've got you've negated what is regarded as a superpowers uh advantage to be able to put uh precision weapons 
uh, within two to three meters of whatever the intended target was almost any place on the planet. So that would be an asymmetric, uh, asymmetric attack using, well, again, even though I started out talking about cyber, I said you could be doing it with kinetic weapons, taking out uh, satellites, taking out uh, relay drones. In other words, picking uh, at taking out key elements of the uh, communication and uh, sensor and targeting uh, targeting system. And the uh, is it asymmetric or is this just another form of what uh, talented prepared warriors have been doing to one another uh, since there were, were really organized organized warfare. Uh, let's take an example too of of, uh, of uh, electronic intelligence. <clears throat> a recent one being that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Ukrainians uh, catching uh, conversations by Russian soldiers on their cell phones. And they're calling back to uh, to Russia to talk to their uh, to their families, uh, their, their friends, or communicate among themselves, and using that as targeting information for artillery, uh, long range long range rockets. It's is it an asymmetry, or just uh, having a, a, a common sense and capa uh, capability to be able to pick up those conversations and then use the positioning data or on the ground or under the ground data to be able to whatever it was the russians had said i think 68 or 70 people were killed and the ukrainians said they took out one figure i saw over 300 uh, russian soldiers with that attack that was supposedly uh instigated by uh, intercepting the cell phone. Uh, electronic intelligence and asymmetry uh, was created by Admiral Nimitz when uh, Navy, uh, electro uh, Navy intercept picked up uh, uh, Japanese signals. They were able to decode it and know that the target was midway. So Nimitz went about setting up his, his ambush to ambush the uh, the Japanese, a much more powerful fleet at the time, but the surprise attack that Nimitz organized for the Battle of Midway was based on something the United States could do, which was intercept the Japanese code and break it. And the Japanese didn't have the, uh, the, the, that same capability. Again, that is something that's done now. Now, Small scale, I'll, I'll give you an example of uh, something that I think is a, a qualifies in the Ukraine war as an interesting uh, asymmetric, and that is the Ukrainians' ability to operate a very successful, small, combined, armed, uh, and dispersed groups. Uh, that's proven to be a, a real advantage. Uh, over the Russians, and but what goes into that, Dan? Uh, the fact that they've got Stinger and Javelin teams uh, in, 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 with uh, very successful fire direction control teams, and then also mixed in with that are what are essentially uh, uh, 
light infantry backed by some uh, light armor and occasionally, uh, occasionally tanks. Uh, how did that come up? Came about the hard way fighting Russians in the, the, the Donbass after 2014. They figured out this is what they needed to do. They didn't want to take on uh, uh, Russian armored columns straight on. And then they looked at, I mean, some of the, the tactics early in, in, in the war, uh, asymmetric, knocking out the lead vehicle and knocking out the rear vehicle. That's what the Finns did to the Russians in the, the, in the Winter War. And then, of course, the Finns had a, a built-in asymmetry, which was that terrible terrain that the Russians tried to punch through. Eventually, they did uh, when they knocked Finland out of the war. But the terrain was an asymmetry. So I'll let Jim talk, uh, talk about it. I'm, if I sound like I've got uh, a classicist view of, of asymmetry, I, I do. Jim, so what are your views on asymmetry that are different than Austin's? Well, it works both ways. Uh, both sides can adopt, you know, an asymmetric uh, form of warfare. China has been particularly, uh, how should I put it, clever in coming up with ways to counter the asymmetry. For example, their use of the balloons, they're moving at about 20,000 meters, you know, in, in what they call uh, near-Earth orbit. Uh, these are not just for intelligence collection, but they can also be fitted to basically act as low-flying uh, positioning satellites. Uh, and uh, China has already been experimenting with, uh, and we've seen this, sending up uh, satellites which disperse, oh, I think seven or eight or more smaller satellites, which are apparently intended to knock out communications or, uh, or you know, uh, GPS satellites. Um, now, if you do this, uh, the enemy is forced to improvise. Uh, China has its own uh, Baidu uh, satellite network, so they can knock out the American GPS and still have their own Baidu. Russia also has their GLONASS, so they can do the same thing, but they haven't got the capabilities, you know, the material, as it were, that the Chinese do. I mean, the, the Russians have basically reduced their status as a near-peer adversary uh, with their uh, their wasteful tactics, as Austin pointed out, getting obliterated uh, by the Ukrainians. And they're still getting hammered by the Ukrainians, uh, but they're not giving up because, again, they're following, the, as Austin pointed out, the old Stalinist mode, uh, quantity as a quality all, all its own, up to a point, because this is in Stalin's time. And what we're seeing is a lot more Russians do not want to be the quality, the quantity, uh, to make up for the lack of quality. Uh, and and uh, in Stalin's time, you didn't have a lot of people, uh, you know, avoiding military service. As what as as Stalin pointed out, you have to be a very brave man uh, to be a coward uh, in Russia. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, people are really, you know, uh, taking a powder as it were. They're they're getting lost. They're not getting mobilized. So the Russians aren't able to mobilize the troops they used to be able to mobilize. And uh, they are trying to fight a long war, but they cannot fight a long war unless they can muster enough people to keep their end of the war going. So that's another form of asymmetry. The Ukrainians want to get the war over as quickly as possible. Uh, they're running into problems because the, the Russians have always uh, emphasized uh, continued uh, how should I put it, lobbying of the uh, the larger NATO allies, especially France, 
and uh, Germany and even the United States, for example, to try and stop the, uh, these allies from sending tanks to the Ukrainians. Because they know the Ukrainians, no matter what kind of tanks you give them, I mean, you, also, you see all sorts of excuses. Well, they can't handle the, uh, uh, the M1. Well, they can handle the M1. They've handled everything else we've thrown at them. Um, uh, uh, they, don't, they don't expect the tanks to last forever. They just have to last long enough to, uh, to basically uh, knock the Russians out, as it were. And that's what the Russians are confronting. Now, if the Ukrainians are, and, and the Russians expect this, you know, assemble a force of over 100 or 200 uh, M1s and Leopards, you know, in the next few months, uh, the Russians are in big trouble because they have no counter for that. They haven't got the anti-tank weapons that can handle these tanks. Uh, like I say, these are these are Western tanks aren't designed like the Russian tanks. They aren't as vulnerable and they're far more powerful. Uh, they're more reliable. Uh, so, you know, the Russians are facing a problem, which I don't know what their solution is going to be. They're certainly not going to surrender. But the Ukrainians are willing to uh, account our victory as pushing all the Russians out of uh, out of Ukraine. And this is what's really getting the, the uh, NATO allies to supply them with all they need, because they know this war will go on and on, costing them the arm and the leg uh, until the Ukrainians can achieve their objective, which is actually the objective of everybody to uh, eliminate the, the Russians from uh, the uh, Ukrainian territory they occupy. The reason for this is very simple. The eastern NATO members, Poland, the Baltic states, and what have you, and, and, the, and the new ones, the ones they're trying to get in despite Turkish interference, like Finland, they also understand that if the Russians win any kind of territorial concession and victory in Ukraine, they are next. You know, the Poles, you know, are in, in particular realize, you know, the Russians will come after them. Uh, the Baltic states are much more, you know, vulnerable. They're smaller. Uh, the Russians will chop them up if they get the chance. So for them, uh, they keep the pressure on the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the farther away NATO allies that, look, we got to stop. Them. We got to do it. We got to give the Ukrainians what they need. You know, we supply the weapons. They do the fighting. I mean, nobody wants to come out and say that, but that's basically the deal. Even these, even the, even the, uh, the Ukrainians don't say it in quite those words, but that's what it comes down to. Um, so it's a battle of will, but it's also a battle of politics. You know, like I say, the lobbying, you know, trying to keep the, uh, the Western allies, you know, a little more reluctant to supply the Ukrainians what they need. Um, the, um, the Chinese, though, I've learned from this, uh, but the Chinese have one disadvantage. They don't really want a war. Uh, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, which rules China, they only stay in power if they can keep the economy going. Right now, the economy is not doing too well. If there's a war, even if the, uh, the, the Chinese are doing well, uh, their economy will be shut down. Uh, you know, millions and millions of Chinese will be out of work. They will be unhappy with their government. And, and this is something China has never had to worry about. Well, they actually have had historically. Uh, if you've got enough of your own people against your war effort, you've got to end the war. So, you know, it's, it's the asymmetry. You've, you've got asymmetric tactics within asymmetric tactics within asymmetric tactics. That's confusing after a while. But that's an advantage, too, if, if you're a little more on the ball about what's actually going on than somebody else. But that's what, you know, the, the, uh, the United States has to keep in mind with, with China. Uh, you don't have to defeat China in a naval war. And I, we've got a piece coming out on the logistics problems 
you know, with uh, with sustaining a uh, you know offensive in uh, in the Western Pacific. Um, and the Chinese are the largest shipbuilder in the world now. Uh, at the end of World War II, well, in the 1930s, by the end of World War II, we were the largest ship manufacturer. We had the largest fleet. We could we could build more ships quickly. Now it's China that can do it. But China, you know, we could s- sustain losses in World War II. We had rationing in the United States, something a lot of people forget. Uh, China really is already in a state of rationing. They're already in a state of crisis internally. And a war would push that from crisis into you know, government change. Um, so uh, the, uh, you know, the, the asymmetry uh, has, is a weapon that is apply, has to be applied in many different ways. Uh, you know, it's, it's a basically a weapon. It's an arsenal of weapons. And the way you apply it, when you apply it, how you apply it, and so on, uh, determines how you're going to win. Like I say, the, the Chinese are using their balloons as a backup for lost satellites. Uh, they take out our satellites. We haven't got the balloon system. They do. They have an advantage. But again, they can't afford a war. That's one thing you've got to understand about the China. The Chinese, and that's, that's Sun Tzu. That's ancient Chinese military techno, uh, you know, uh, strategy. Uh, look strong, be threatening, but don't attack. Uh, an attack is very expensive. You know, you, if you cannot afford the expense, you know, you automatically lose if you have to attack. And the Chinese are very conscious of Sun Tzu, and they follow his strategies. Uh, Russians, you know, the, the Chinese feel the Russians are stupid. They basically uh, destroyed their military power in, in Ukraine. Even if they may have managed to hang on to some Ukrainian territory, they're no longer a near-peer power. Uh, the economic sanctions, which China has not violated that much, they've taken advantage of them. You know, China is now the major power in Central Asia. Uh, before the war, it was Russia. You know, the uh, the Central Asians, they used to be part of the Soviet Union. They were familiar with the Russians. They traded with the Russians. But now the Russians are nothing. And the Chinese are there with their money, uh, with making deals, what have you. Uh, the Central Asians go with what their economies need, not what Russia needs. And China needs more economic clout in Central Asia, and they're getting it. Uh, even in Afghanistan, they were very reluctant, you know, before to move into Afghanistan because the Americans were, you know, uh, controlling that that the, the government. Now the government is basically run by a bunch of religious fanatics. They're screwing it up. They're even more vulnerable. So the Chinese can make deals and simply point out to the, uh, you know, the Taliban government, look, if you if you screw this up, you're dead. You know, you, you people are starving this winter. There's not enough food. Uh, we are not. We don't give anything away. That's that's another big difference between the Chinese and the Russians during the Cold War. During the Chinese during the Cold War, the Russians gave stuff away. The Chinese learned from that. You don't give anything away. You come in, you have aid. People are starving. Well, we can give you food, but we want something. And now in the West, I say, oh, that's cold blooded. I mean, that's not that's not ethical. Ethics schmecks. The Chinese are looking out for themselves, and that gives them a tremendous advantage. I mean, that was basically what the Japanese and the and the uh, Nazis did during World War Two. Uh, you know, morality, ethics, screw it. You know, we're out to get what we can. And early in, for the first couple of years of the war, that worked for them. But eventually it backfires. But sometimes eventually it never comes. 
and you know those victories become permanent and that's what the chinese are looking for so you have to understand your enemy they don't fight the way you fight and that's the ultimate asymmetry austin dan let me pick up go ahead yeah yeah i'm sorry go ahead i was going to say that when i start off on my classes classicist uh, intro sun tzu is really about gaining advantage that's the, the best description of uh, of his uh, of his work and jim was pointing out that sun tzu's advice you know really he doesn't want to get into combat it's a it part of, of, of a couple of chapters talking about how expensive everything is uh you want to look strong yeah you want to be strong, the guy to make a mistake and uh, make the mistakes, and that's uh, you know that's part of when he says that you need to understand yourself, and then you know understand uh, understand your enemy, know you know your enemy, and 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 know yourself. But his his advice is always ultimately about an, uh, creating an asymmetry, uh, either whether it's tactical, uh, operational. Uh, strategic or diplomatic, and there is a, a diplomatic asymmetry working out in, in Ukraine now. Uh, we, something that we talked about at least five or six times, which is Russia's not just fighting Ukraine; it's fighting Western Europe and North America. And in some ways, if you follow the you know, munitions uh, uh, stockage, it's also they're also fighting uh, South Korea. Japan uh, and uh, Australia and other sources were sending 155 millimeter uh, shells, not uh, necessarily to, to Ukraine, not directly to Ukraine, to American stock uh, stockpiles. Uh, huge. It's not just big bad Russia picking on little Ukraine. <laughs> They're taking on the wealthiest nations in the world. Minus China is what it, what it amounts to. Because I'll see. I, I think I, if you went through it, you'd find that uh, nine of uh, the uh, eight eight of the top ten economies of the planet in GDN GDP are supporting uh, uh, Ukraine in uh, either directly or indirectly. Uh, that's an asymmetry. It's not just uh, it's an economic symmetry. And it becomes a technological asymmetry when the Ukraine starts receiving and has already been receiving these uh, modern uh, modern weapons and modern munitions, you know, like uh, the multiple launch rocket system uh, in uh, uh, high Mars. Uh, now, Jim wrote something uh, not too long ago about how everyone wants high Mars. Why? Because it works. Uh, give the U.S. Army credit. For developing the, that rocket, and I think it, it came out of Missile Command and uh, White Sands and and uh, Redstone Arsenal. Uh, tremendous, tremendous system, <clears throat> and it does have efficacy in the in the Pacific. The Marines have already shown you they put a high Mars on the deck of a of an amphibious assault ship, and now they got a cruiser. At least in terms of the, the firepower that uh, that uh, high Mars. Uh, or the MLRS version, MLRS can uh, can deliver an extended range. You now you're getting up to where the the, the, so the missiles can hit uh, 700 kilometers and actually even more with some of the 
uh, new extended range uh, rockets. I understand what the actual Jim may have a better insight on what the range is, but the uh, range is supposed to be uh, jaw dropping. Uh, 150, 150 kilometers. Uh, 150 yeah. <laughs> it was 150. I, I knew I read that. It's just. It, it, it's that's an asymmetry, Dan. They were worried about the you know long range Russian artillery. Now they've got this pinpoint uh, rocket system, the uh, guided guided uh, a, a guided munition. Of course, it can be interfered with, <coughs> uh, but it's also got internal a, a, internal guidance so that it's it's not re relying on the satellites. Doesn't have to rely on or or uh, redirection. Uh, that's that gets into a, a, a tactical asymmetry. So it, it, a, warfare is you know, winning warfare has always been about an asymmetry. And uh, you know, as I, I've said before, look, a surprise, a surprise attack, is an asymmetric attack. Pearl Harbor was an asymmetric attack because the American, United States was caught completely off guard. Uh, and the Japanese did it by being very stealthy <clears throat> in the way they moved uh, moved their fle fleets. And really in the September of 41, that's when their deception plan kicked in. So everybody thought that uh, the, the Japanese, when they made their move, they were gonna move south, uh, Philippines and, and go to Borneo and, and, uh, and Java and take control of the oil fields which hey, that's what they need. They, they need the resources. They're not gonna risk uh, coming for Hawaii, but they sure enough did. And uh, they, they had a very sophisticated uh, deception, deception plan that created that asymmetry. Right out of Sun Tzu is what it amounts to. It's right out what Sun Tzu said, and he wasn't first to say it. As Jim said, he, Sun Tzu was collecting uh, the wisdom of uh, Chinese commanders uh, <clears throat> since 1200 BC, 1000 BC, and he's he's in the, around 500 BC when he puts it together. Yeah, it's poetry in some places. In some places, as Al Nofi uh, pointed out, I had him come to, when I was teaching that uh, 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 history class. Uh, you know, at uh, the University of Texas uh, honors course, Nofi uh, shows up and and uh, says the Sun Tzu is not just about uh, 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 creating an advantage and all the, all that. There are parts of it that are like a field manual that are dated. Where he talks about when you see this, that means light cavalry on the on the flanks. He says that's that's like a, a modern field manual. But what everybody wants to look at, or his his uh, uh, concepts of of thinking through a situation, immense preparation, and then at the same time, what you're trying to do, you want to accomplish it di diplomatically or economically instead of actually having a fight, which is something that uh, Jim points out, uh, Jim was pointing out earlier. So, Jim, often the general public thinks about asymmetry as, you know, the United States facing a foe like the Taliban. Um, what are the current 
preparations in the United States and other large countries to face smaller foes? Well, the smaller foes never win. I mean, they, they never win anything substantial. That's the that's the problem. You cannot you cannot eliminate them. Uh, you know, as as the as the uh, Islamic uh, terrorists, especially ISIL, say, you know, we're not afraid to you know uh, die for our you know uh, for our cause or kill for our cause. We're we're not afraid to die for our cause. You know, and they they enthusiastically you know you know embrace that literally as with the suicide bombers that one have you. Now that was not invented by the uh, you know by ISIL. I mean the um, the Hindu. Uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The uh, what is they, uh, uh, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka, yeah, the Tamil Tigers. Yeah. Uh, they they use that. They blew up some uh, some aircraft and what have you. They also uh, killed a um, uh, a Indian prime minister. Uh, but it didn't win them their war. I mean, they they eventually you know prevail inside Sri Lanka. But they, at the same time, they managed to dissuade India from getting involved. You know, India felt, you know, Sri Lanka was their little, you know, uh, semi-independent kingdom off the southern tip of India. Uh, and the, uh, you know, the, the Tamils wanted to prove otherwise. And eventually they did. But that war went on for a long time. And in many respects, it's still going on. You know, some of these, some of these wars, you've got to remember, are forever wars. They never really end. Uh, and that's, for example, that's what's happening with the Russian Empire. You know, the Russians, they believed uh, because some American think, some Western or American think tank said, you know, we have to take Russia apart. Well, that was that was never a serious war plan. It was just some guy saying, well, you know, uh, what if, what if, you know, well, what if we just totally, you know, took Russia apart? Well, Russia took that as a as the current, uh, you know, NATO war cry. Well, you know, we it isn't worth it. You know, Russia is weak enough as Russia is, but Russia felt, no, 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 we have to basically uh, defeat NATO, which is which is impossible. Uh, and we have to take Ukraine because Ukraine is part of Russia. Well, they've given up on that and they basically they finally declared war. Uh, and that, is, like I say, isn't encouraging a lot of Russians to join. Uh, you know, they, they have state controlled media, which for a long time, the opinion survey showed, you know, supported the war. Or you know the special military operation in Ukraine. Well, now it's now it's finally been declared as a war to rescue Russia from being you know taken apart, and most Russians aren't buying it, and uh, so Russia has a real problem. They've lost whatever credibility they had internally, and they want to keep this war going. So that's not going to end well. Uh, but the Ukrainians and you know, the Belarusians. I mean, the Belarusians, you know, in terms of popular opinion. Are anti-Russian, but Lysenko, the dictator, the guy who's really started as a reformer, they all do. Uh, but for, since the mid 1990s, he's basically been a, a dictator, and the only thing that's been propping him up is Russians, Russian troops. Uh, they're not there to uh, aid Ukraine, uh, uh, Belarus. They're there to keep their man in power, because the minute they withdraw that support, you know, boom. Uh, Lysenko is gone and Belarus is in the same, you know, uh, mental space as the Ukrainians. Um, and that is the sort of thing that keeps a lot of these wars going. The, uh, the empire like Iran or Turkey is another one. These are the three empires we pointed out many times earlier in strategy page are empires trying to put themselves back together again. Some empires 
you know, the end and and the and and the the uh, the core of those empires that yeah, all right, empires are all over. I mean, France, you know, they kept they, they kept tabs with their colonial, you know, um, former colonial possessions in Africa, but it was mostly economic aid. They just felt, hey, you know, we're still in touch. You know, we were enemies, but now we're friends. La 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 yada. You know, French culture and what have you. Britain had a, a somewhat similar situation uh, with their empire, but the Indians were very, very, uh, you know, angry about, you know, whatever, you know, the uh, the uh, the uh, British occupation, the British Raj, as it were. And the British don't care. You know, they say, all right, you know, we'll 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 do what we can. We're willing, but you know, we have no intention of trying to, you know, uh, you know, build that empire. That would have lasted for about a hundred years, and uh, basically after World War II, the accountants, you know, told Churchill, "We can't really afford it, sir." <laughs> While he was figuring out a way to do it, the Labour Party came in and, you know, got him bounced out of office. But the, you know, in some empires, you know, it basically it's it's a it's economics overcomes everything else because empires are expensive unless you can make the empire pay for itself, which is the reason why Afghanistan was never a real country. It was always whenever this, when the Silk Road was still around and there was money to be made in maintaining your portion of the Silk Road, you could basically tax, you know, whatever's coming through. You would, you would assure the caravans were safe as long as they paid. Uh, so it was worth ha- hanging on to. And for a while, you know, uh, one part of, uh, you know, uh, eastern Afghanistan was, was run by a Hindu, you know, uh, uh, prince, as it were, and the Iranians, you know, the Persians, basically took the western portion. But the minute the Europeans found a way to uh, build better ships, more efficient uh, you know, shipping uh, to uh, the Far East, the Silk Road lost all of its economic importance. And that brought enormous changes uh, you know, throughout the, the Central Asia. Um, that's why Afghanistan became a semi-country. They basically agreed among themselves, the tribes, who were not willing to become, you know, the the you know the subjects of any one ruler, but they said, look, we'll establish a a a, a kingdom of Afghanistan, which it was until 1970 something, um, and uh, and the but the only thing the the kingdom will do is keep the foreigners out, and so the the king was always a uh, a uh, uh, a member of the the largest tribe, uh, the uh, God, what, are, what are they, the uh, Pushtun. Uh, uh, but basically, his his main job is just to keep the foreigners out. Uh, but then some of the city folk, you know, decided well, communism is the way to go, and it's it's basically been downhill ever since. Uh, but the the empires are basically empires that are trying to reform are a constant cause of problems. So you've got the Chinese Empire, the Middle Kingdom. You know, people don't don't most people don't realize that the Chinese word for China. Okay, my my Mandarin pronunciations suck, but anyway, it means Middle Kingdom, and it means the the uh, the uh, the sovereign of all that that it surveys. Now, <laughs> until recently, that meant land, you know, properties, not the sea. But now China has got a big navy. They're basically take, taking, uh, you know, possession of the South China Sea. They need the oil coming in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're no longer a, uh, how should I put it, a local problem. They're an international problem. So what do you do? The Turks, you know, the earthquake will set them back a little bit. They were trying to, you know, reestablish their, their, their empire. The Arabs said, no, thank you. Um, 
and resisted it, you know, uh, you know, with the, with great uh, force. Uh, the Iranians, the same thing. Uh, so, you know, uh, thank God, most empires, you know, that have tried to revive have stumbled and collapsed and and found out this is the empire business is more expensive than they can afford, and they basically back off. But in the process, it causes a lot of problems for everybody. And this is something you've got to understand, because the, uh, the United States was never an imperial power. We were an economic power. We were basically trying to protect our economic interests, not rule foreign countries, but simply to allow you know, free trade to continue, which was beneficial to the, you know, the country that well, both countries, the United States and the country they were trading with. Now, if you didn't want to trade with the United States, all right, no big deal. If you want to live in poverty and, you know, isolation, some countries prefer to do that. Afghanistan, for example, until they decided, well, let's go communist and become a proper country and, and get really screwed up, which is precisely what they did. So this is the kind of asymmetry that basically makes the world go round, uh, usually in fits and bumps, and the ride can get very rough at times. Uh, but, you know, it's really, you know, what it comes down to. What is good for me, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're basically pragmatic, willing to take your losses, you know, you can go along and, and do fairly well. But if you get ambitious and your ambitions outrun your capabilities, you're in for nothing but trouble. And that's what we're seeing in so many parts of the world. Well, that's a good point to stop. Uh, thank you. And we'll talk to both of you next time. Okay. Till then. Bye.